As you remain standing for the reading and the hearing of God's Word, I invite you now to take up your copy of God's Holy Word and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, where we will begin reading at verse 13. Hear now the Word of the Lord. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we come before you open and ready to hear and receive the preaching of your holy word. And as we do so, we give you thanks for Christ, who is the head of the church, even the stone which the builders rejected and became the chief cornerstone. We come with a particular heart of thanksgiving this week that you have been pleased to place us in your church and Surround us with those who have known the comfort of Christ and have thereby comforted us with it. This is your doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Teach us and build us up in the truth and exhortation of your word, O O Lord. Grow us in spiritual maturity and equip us with a a high regard for the bride of Christ, the church. We pray that your spirit would impress upon us this morning what it means to be the church. Shore us up in the truth that we would never lose our way. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As I suggested at the opening this morning... Much of the church today is experiencing what we might call, in popular terms, an identity crisis. In this crisis, we have forgotten who we are, or more precisely, we have forgotten what God has told us we are. How are we to understand ourselves as the people of God How are we to understand the church? 
Well, I have the distinct honor and privilege of preaching this morning to a particular church and a peculiar people who have a high level of commitment to the church and a high regard for the faith once delivered. I want us to know that we are not immune to the effects of the cultural disintegration that surrounds us. Apart from the diligent pursuit of the truth of God's revelation in Scripture and its faithful application to all of life, including our understanding of the church, we will inevitably find ourselves adrift in a sea of confusion and error. So in order to better understand this error and the challenges of this day, I would like for us to consider the following three propositions so that we might be, even as the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. First, as we discern the times, I want, I want to consider the radical destruction of the meaning of what it means to be human happening all around us. And we might refer to this as a human identity crisis. In approaching the point, I will be focusing on the impact of technology as I believe it is one of the defining challenges of this, this age. But even if you're not a technology person and you get tired and fall asleep when we technology folks start talking to you, I, I, I pray that you would hang on and understand and know that even if you don't use these technologies, they will affect your life and how you see yourself. And second, we will briefly see the effect of this as it has come into the church, resulting in an ecclesiastical identity crisis or an identity crisis in the church. And finally, we will begin, and only begin, to consider what is the church's true identity. And this, I hope, will be the beginning of a short series of messages in which we turn to the Word of God with an eye towards shoring up our corporate response to the question, what is the church? So let's begin at point number one, this human identity crisis. I run the risk at this point in the message of making claims of the challenges faced in the present day as singularly serious in nature and without conceding that they have had their parallels throughout the course of history and in church history in particular. And so let me acknowledge that up front. There is nothing new under the sun. The depth of man's darkness of heart is such that he is capable of innumerable forms and inventions and thoughts of evil. And regardless of the evils faced by a particular generation... The corrective is found in the truth of God's Word and in the embrace of the Gospel. And as we begin to explore the quest, what is the church? We need, first of all, to be able to know with certainty, even as the apostles knew, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so turning back to our text, we read, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Peter responded on behalf of the disciples regarding the identity of Jesus, he answered not based upon the consensus of the people. He didn't take a poll to see whether more people agreed that Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or even one of the prophets. He didn't respond according to what was most politically expedient or according to that which would do the least damage to his social standing. He spoke the truth according to God's word. He knew that Yahweh said of Jesus in Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Peter most certainly didn't speak according to his subjective feelings or an inner voice, but according to the word of God confirmed by God. And thus Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. If we know with absolute certainty who Jesus is, we will have no trouble at all understanding our identity. And when we have questions about what it means to be a man or to be a woman, a father or a mother, or what is right or wrong and what is strictly forbidden, we know that we can depend and rest upon the truths of Scripture. But the challenges to this simple but not simplistic understanding of our identity is under fierce assault these days. We live in a technological age, and it could be argued that we are only at the leading edge of an utterly astounding and even unimaginable technologies that lay ahead. And these include powerful possibilities for doing good and sobering, even horrifying probabilities for promoting evil. We are saturated in a wealth of information and communications that are only possible because of this technology, and the fact is we grow more dependent upon it each and every day. Some of you may recall an email that we received on the church list in which Someone responded to a request for a costume by asking an artificial intelligence system called ChatGPT this question. What are some of the simple costume ideas for a Christmas ball for a young man? So just talking to a computer system. And if you read that email, you saw that the AI system responded with five good ideas in solid English grammar, not unlike something you would find in a book on the topic. But that, it turns out, was a fluff question for ChatGPT. Now, even if you haven't heard of ChatGPT, just think, you know, a really smart computer system. So earlier this week, I caught a fragment of a talk given by Jordan Peterson that illustrates the power of such technology. If you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, that's all right. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist who has become something of a media personality and a modern-day philosopher. He's not a Christian that I know of, but he's 
battling the woke insanity with courage and a hefty dose of common sense. A couple of the books he has written are entitled 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote for Chaos, and Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. So in this interview that I listened to, Peterson said that he asked ChatGPT to do the following. Write an essay that's a 13th rule for beyond order, written in a style that combines the King James Bible with the Tao Te Ching. I don't know anything about Taoism, but I assume that's one of their scriptures. So it was an interesting challenge, and he noted that such a question was not only difficult, but pretty near impossible if you think about the intersection of those three parameters, and yet... ChatGPT responded in about three seconds with a four-page essay that when he read it, it wasn't obvious to Peterson that he would be able to tell that he hadn't written it himself. And I find that to be astounding. And this technology is getting better and better every day. What are the implications for good, for ill with such technology? I don't know. But for some people, it will strike at the very essence of what it means to be human. And this is just one of a myriad of technologies that are a part of our everyday lives that we are increasingly dependent upon and that shapes how we understand ourselves. And I believe that it can be easily seen that there is a turning inward and a shaping of our expectations driven by these technologies. Rather than broadening our real social circles and increasing our understanding of ourselves as a people or society, ironically, social media has, in many cases, become a platform to put our individuality on display, and for some, it has even led to isolation. Then you think, just for a moment, about the impact upon the church by the situation known as COVID and the the proliferation of the phrase Zoom church. And I think we need to take great care in our understanding and application of these technologies. Fueled by social media, expressive individualism has become the order of the day. And this is so much the case that anything that is seen as limiting or imposing upon that individualism is now denounced as a moral evil. Anything that limits or restricts or imposes upon our individualism is denounced as a moral evil. My desires, my thoughts, my feelings rule the day and I have become a sort of ultimate authority. The external physical fact that your body obviously proclaims you to be male must now give way to your inner feelings telling you that you are female. As another Peterson once wrote, this time Eugene Peterson, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me, end quote. Or I would want to put it even stronger. It is what God declares me to be. If we consider just the specific issue of the sexualization of identity as we see with transgenderism, 
It is only plausible if certain technologies exist. In the old order, the way things have always been, sex is a behavior and serves a social function within the bond of marriage. For sexual desire to become identity, sex itself needs to be reconceptualized as something of primarily individual significance. And that, that can only take place if it can be detached from its social consequences. This, in turn, requires a world of antibiotics and contraceptives and abortion. And then you add to that the perverse use of hormone treatments and surgical procedures, and we see the power of technology in shaping our collective moral imaginations on just this one subject. Had Peter been a modern man given over to this clown world moral imagination, he likely would have responded to Jesus' question with, you are whoever or whatever you want to be today. And if you change your mind, it is not for me to judge. You be you. How sad is that? The moral imagination within our culture is consequently being reshaped into a new order that sees human beings as psychological wills apart from and without any material or physical limitations. And this change, and as this change takes root, the old order and its understanding of human beings as both body and soul is revealed in Scripture and even evidenced in nature become increasingly implausible. So no, do not become a cyborg. I say to someone I had with a conversation just this morning, the things that make Christianity stand out from the wider culture, belief in the incarnation, the resurrection, and the embodied human nature as a real universal thing with moral consequences are antithetical to the terms of peaceful existence in this emerging world order. We face in a very real sense, a human identity crisis. And the catalyst at the center of this crisis and these dramatic developments in technology are transforming not simply the way we live, but the way we are. What and who we understand ourselves to be. They tend to tilt our imaginations toward thinking of the world in general and ourselves specifically as being merely raw material to do with as we wish, or even more radically, as representing a set of problems to be overcome. I suspect most of us are aware that we now have a Supreme Court justice who is unable or unwilling to offer a definition to the term woman. And while the question, what is a woman, most directly addresses gender and its relationship to biological sex, the very fact that the question can be seriously asked points to a deeper issue, namely that the question, that is the question what is human, no longer commands any strong consensus in the culture and society in which we live. The la this lack of consensus on what it means to be human underlies our most contentious points of political and social conflict today, and it will most certainly bring conflict to the church, and it even already has, and that brings us to our second point, the church's 
identity crisis. <clears throat> Many, perhaps indeed most, of the controversies which have arisen in church history in connection with church theology can be traced back to fundamental differences of opinion regarding the essential nature and character of this peculiar society which Christ instituted and which we call the church. The different and even opposite ideas that men have professed to gather from Scripture regarding the origin and essential principles of the Christian church have led to conclusions which vary widely in regard to the church's functions, its authority, its ordinances, and its government, and so on. And given this understanding, we can see that there is sort of an ecclesiastical identity crisis which goes way, way back. But notice what I said. These struggles over identity are the result of different and even opposite ideas which men have professed to gather from Scripture. From Scripture. So this is not the identity crisis which I am most concerned with here. These differences within the church history that we're talking about, I trust, are the result of honest men laboring to understand the church from within the revelation of Scripture. And that's a difficult task. The identity crisis that I am concerned with this morning is one that causes disintegration of the church from within because people are explicitly not looking to answer the question, what is the church, from the pages of Scripture, but rather they are deliberately importing answers to that question from outside Scripture. And the two main sources of these extra-biblical truths could be stated they're being found within cultural cues and worldly wisdom and, secondly, personal feelings and opinions. And not surprisingly, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes these two in Romans 1 as he writes, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. In other words, this ecclesiastical identity crisis exists because some people really wanted to place their trust not to place their trust in what flesh and blood has revealed in in a revelation that comes not from God the Father, but from mere mortals. As we acknowledge that we live in an age of entertainment, it's not surprising that this spectacle and entertainment has been brought into the church, whether it be movie clips or monster trucks or bull riding or pro wrestlers or rock bands with light shows or Broadway-worthy drama productions being integrated into the worship service. Entertainment is shaping the contemporary church's identity. Sometimes it's shocking. At other times it's subtle and slowly inserting its influence. But either way, the motivation is the same. The culture loves entertainment, so the wisdom goes. Therefore, the church needs and should be entertaining. There are churches, I'm convinced, that never once stop to consider what the government of the church should look like what the qualifications of our officers are, and if there are any restrictions. They never looked 
to the Word of God for these, with these questions. They want the church to be successful, and so they look to models of success and worldly wisdom they find in corporate America, which calls for a CEO with charisma, business acumen, and a side of good looks. Husband of one wife, sober-mindedness, not covetous, ruling his own house well, having children in submission with all reverence are considered irrelevant or possibly even counterproductive. We also let personal feelings and opinions drive our ecclesiology. Politically correct, gender-neutral, feminine expressions of the Creator from the pulpit by pastors in liberal churches and denominations abound. Hope United Methodist Church in Bloomington, Illinois, celebrated Drag Sunday on April 11, 2021, where an openly homosexual ministerial candidate delivered the message in drag. And all of that is easily seen to be expressly forbidden in Scripture and an abomination before the Lord. But it is enthusiastically embraced by many because it feels like the loving an inclusive thing to do. These days, feelings reign supreme. Anyone or anything that challenges our feelings is quickly declared to be an oppressor. Folks, do not trust your feelings. They are not an ultimate authority. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Trust the Word of God, even when it doesn't feel right. Labor in the Word of God, and He will show you that it is right. It is heartbreaking to consider that so many of these lost churches were once, years ago, faithful churches. Churches where the people of God gathered and were fed the truth of the Word and nourished in the faith. But once the church loses its moorings and begins to slip, trusting in an external revelation or novel hermeneutics that attempt to unravel the Word of God, or they embrace the spirit of the age, the identity crisis within the church becomes real. And once it abandons the infallibility, inerrancy, and perspicuity of Scripture, its identity as a church is altogether lost. Churches that were once a church were no longer a church. So point number three, the church's true identity. What is the church's true identity? In his response to Peter, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In our text this morning, we find the first usage of ecclesia, which is translated church in the New Testament. The word ecclesia, ecclesia is, in its primary usage, denotes any assembly gathered together from among the multitude, 
whether regularly organized or not, and whether for civil or ecclesiastical purposes. And we see the two root words that make up ecclesia, ek meaning out, and ecclesia meaning called, and therefore ecclesia can be understood as the called out ones, the church. And as we heard earlier in the reading of the Old Testament, reading from Ezekiel, the Lord said, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. Thus we see God's promise to call His people out from among the heathen and gather them together and cleanse them. This is the church. We're called out from the world and gathered together as His people, separate and sanctified, set apart for His exclusive worship. As He calls His people out of the world and sets them apart, He also gives us new hearts, no longer hard hearts of stone, but fleshy hearts, willing and able to yield to His ways and to follow His statutes. He also gives us His Spirit, which empowers us to walk in His ways and comforts us in our afflictions and opens our eyes to the truth of His Word and sanctifies us after the image of Christ. In speaking to Peter, Christ says, He will build His church. Christ is the builder of the church. Apart from Christ... The Christ who truly is and who is revealed us, revealed to us in Scripture alone, there is no church. When people gather and hear preaching and sing hymns and yet there is no Christ, there is no church. There is an assembly. There may be sweet fellowship. There may be good music. There may be even good feelings and helpful instructions that come from that gathering But without the Christ of Scripture, there is no church. A Christian once heard that his friends had joined a unity church. And so, being a Christian, he warned them that since the unity church denies the resurrection and denies even the one true God, then they have not joined a church at all, but rather a cult. At that, his friend's wife spoke up, Oh, but we love it there. We always come away from the service feeling much better. Is feeling better what church is all about? Now, don't don't impose upon that that feeling bad is what the church is about. But is that what makes the church? For many people, unfortunately, the answer to that question is yes. What they look for in a church is a spiritual social club, fun and friendship. They're not looking for a truth that will change their lives. USA Today once asked a sampling of Americans why they attend church. 45% checked off because it is good for you. A little like taking your daily vitamin, you might say. Another 26% said they attend church for peace of mind. Almost no one said anything about what the church actually teaches, what its doctrines are, about truth. Most just wanted a church that helps them feel good about themselves. As one sociologist put it, going to church is no longer a way to fulfill a spiritual duty, but a way to meet an emotional need. Many churchgoers are hardly any different from their unchurched neighbors. Evidence comes from a Gallup poll which asked people about their everyday ethical 
decisions, like calling in to sick at work when you're not actually sick, or padding your resume, or cheating on your deductions. Except for a very tiny minority of committed Christians, the poll found little difference in the ethical views and behavior of those who attend church and those who don't. There wasn't a significant difference in how much they give to charity either. Among evangelicals, 40% say faith in God is the most important thing in their lives. Yet only 25% tithe to support God's work. Compared to previous generations, today's Christians are the most thoroughly conformed to secular culture. Though plenty of people are still walking through church doors, the dominant worldview in America is secularism. In one poll, most, church, most Christians said all religions are essentially the same, that all worship the same God. And the latest trend in the last couple of years is that the largest growing percentage in these faith polls is a group called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. They state their religion is no religion at all. No faith at all. What a weak, what a weak, insipid view of the church we have. And what a contrast that is to the robust teaching of the church in the New Testament. The Bible describes the church as a community called out from the rest of society to worship God, to demonstrate the truth of a real Savior, to walk in newness of life, and to do this, and as we do this, to be an evident testimony to a watching world of their love for one another. But regardless... Regardless of the struggles we see in the church, or even when we see a church's lampstand removed and we witness apostasy, our faith is not shaken. We are ever confident. We have Christ's sure word that as the church advances against all manner of corruption and wickedness, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church remains and will be victorious. The question is, do we believe it? It's in God's Word, and so we believe it. If you study a bit of church history, you will find that the liberals who wielded such sway and influence in the church in the early part of the 20th century were actually trying to save the church. With the advances in sciences and the prevalence of educated man, they believed they were doing God's work by trying to accommodate the revelation of Scripture to modern notions of reality. Thus, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, and the doctrine of the atonement were cast aside. As J. Gresham Machen engaged the battle for the truth with liberals, he wrote, The greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within. It comes from the presence within the church of a type of faith and practice that is anti-Christian to the core. And he was looking at seminaries, those studied men who taught and brought these, these understandings into the church. And those challenges still exist. But now, with this technology, we all have access to information and wisdom that we bring into the church. And so the, the challenge is very much the same. It's these enemies from without, but it comes up from within. In writing this, 
Machen is addressing, addressing the abandonment of these core doctrines so prevalent in liberalism. And so he continued, faith is essentially, at its very core, dogmatic. Indifferentism about doctrine makes no heroes of the faith. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolute indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. But not only is Christ the builder of his church, and not only has he given us the assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, as was read earlier from Colossians 1, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. The church may be assured that she has Christ as her head. His body, the church, isn't the result of human ingenuity. The church isn't the result of some entrepreneur's vision. The church isn't the result of some crazed religious fanatics 2,000 years ago. The living Christ is the head of a living organism. And identifying Christ as the church's head denotes that he has sovereign lordship and supreme authority over her. When Christ commissioned his disciples, we read, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In our text today, Jesus says that he gives to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Great authority, indeed all authority, belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he places a weighty responsibility upon his church. We are therefore to be all the more thankful that he alone is the head of the church. And so the supremacy of Christ, which was firmly established before creation and exhibited in the incarnation, reigns now, right now, over his church and will be eternally established at his return. The church receives all its life from Christ and has no life apart from him. Christ and the church are one. He is the head and we, as the church, are the body. The New Testament writers teach with one voice that Jesus Christ is the only head of His church. They anchor that claim in the fact of Jesus' exaltation in His resurrection, ascension, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Having raised Jesus from the dead, the Father seated His Son at His right hand and put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all. So what does it mean that Jesus is the only head of the church? It means that He rules over His church by His Word and by the Spirit. He has placed the Bible in the hands of, of the church through His apostles. The Bible tells us what Christ would have us to believe and how Christ would have us to live. Jesus also sent His Spirit to indwell believers. It is the Spirit's delight and commitment to equip believers to walk in the path that Christ has set for them in His Word. Why is the headship of Jesus Christ over His church important for the life of the church? As Christians, it is both our duty and delight to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
since the church is the place where Christ's lordship is on unique display in this world, how, how could a believer refuse to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Our commitment to Christ requires us to commit to his church. And the implications of this are manifold. And Lord willing, I will touch on some of those in future messages. But for now, bear with me as I close with the words of one of my, my favorite hymns. And favorite hymns is the theme of our afternoon psalm sing. So listen to the lyrics to this hymn with fresh ears, if you will. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor she ever shall prevail. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, Yet saints, their watcher keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song, uh, the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she, hath on, yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with thee. Powerful hymn. Powerful hymn filled with powerful truths. And so I say amen to that. And Lord, may it be. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ, and we thank you for your church. While we confess the insufficiency of our understanding and the weakness of our flesh, we rejoice that Christ is the head, the chief cornerstone, the builder and protector of the church. We are thankful that you have called us out of the world and all of its darkness into the glorious light of the church. We are thankful that although we are utterly unworthy of this great privilege in and of ourselves in Christ, in Christ we are made worthy and have been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. What a glorious truth this is to ponder. Is Lord over all, the one 
alone who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and most gracious, we humbly ask for your continued protection and provision of your, for your church across the face of the earth and, and of this particular church in this place. Keep us safely within the bounds of your holy and perfect will. Reform us where we are in error and make us ever ready to repent when we fall short. O Lord, bless us and use us. This we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.